This is season two of The New Romantics. My name's Sophie Scott. And I am Will Eaves. I'm a neuroscientist. Will is a writer and a poet. And in The New Romantics, we try and find ways to communicate between the world of arts and the humanities and scientists and neuroscientists in particular. And we are recording this under conditions of lockdown. How's that going for you, Will? Of course, you would think that being a fairly solitary species, you know, uh, a writer, that lockdown is conducive, really, to to creation and creativity. And I suppose you'd be right, because <laughs> it doesn't differ that much from my normal routine, except that, of course, you're aware of what other people are going through and how hard it is for them. And it's interesting that the ambient levels of anxiety, and I think everyone finds this, do have an effect on your solitude. You know, you're very, very aware of the world. It's a psychological problem. You're aware of the world out there under stress. And that means that your, your sense of safety, you know, in your, in your writer's cell, in your study, um, evaporates quite quickly. <laughs> yes. You know. There's a sort of nagging dread behind everything, isn't there? I kind of find yeah. my days very full of stuff, but if I find a little gap where there isn't something going on, the dread comes raging straight back through, and it's not... It's, 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 not it's an interesting one, because I was reading some Balzac um, the other day, and, uh, you know, thinking about this low-level anxiety that a lot of people are experiencing, and he said, all happiness depends on courage and work. Uh, which is a very simple <laughs> statement. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't draw an explicit connection between courage and work, but I thought that was rather helpful. Yeah. Um, it's sort of suggesting that the happiness reveals itself or the content reveals itself through the doing. You know, it's, it's yeah. that thing that people often say is you don't have to kind of... Um, you don't have to feel brave. You don't have to feel like you've got courage. You have to sort of just be courageous. And then the benefit of the experience reveals itself. And it's always a salutary, you know, thing to remember. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because there's quite a clever little film on YouTube called How to Be Unhappy, which is based on scientific things that we know will make you unhappy. It's quite clever because it's all about kind of telling you how to be happier by kind of suggesting all these things that will make you less happy. But one of the main things that is really, really good at improving mood is simply setting yourself something to do and then doing it. So today Mm. I will X and then I achieved X. And it doesn't almost matter what X is. It might be go for a walk. It could be phone your mum. It could be pick up that book. It could be draw something or do exercise. It doesn't doesn't matter. Achieving something, like you say, with, with, you know, kind of just setting yourself a thing to do and then doing that thing will make you feel better. I think that's true. There's, there's an, although I would add a rider to that, which is, uh, I'm a bit worried. I worry actually often about the word achievement. You know, we're yeah. both or have been university teachers, and we meet a lot of students <laughs> now who are very, very worried about achieving. Mm. And I think it's sort of more important. Yes, make a list and sort of tick things off, and just you know have a goal and, and meet the goal. But you sort of have to be free of the result. That's what yeah. I'd add. Yeah, I think it's, that's true. It doesn't matter if you did it do, well. 
Yeah. Exactly. It's the doing that matters. Yes. Not the um, not excelling. Not the sort of approval. Exactly. That comes at the end of it. <laughs> well, having uh, started so, in a yes. sort of self-help and dread, um, <laughs> we're going in very different directions, I think, from here. Should we? Should we start with your beautiful poems? Oh, how nice! Yes. Um, so, yeah, we normally have some poems or a bit of drama or a short story, and then a, um, a, a neuroscientific paper. For this episode, I've chosen some reasonably old poems. Ninth uh, and tenth century, in fact, and they are poems written during the great sort of flowering of of culture, art, uh, music, and poetry in Baghdad uh, in the um, Abbasid dynasty. So these are ninth and tenth century poems, and the poets are Abdullah al Mutaz, who was born in the ninth century, mid ninth century, and Abu al Allah al Mari, who was born at the end of the tenth century. And uh, they're very different poets, but they they share a cultural importance as poets, which is to say, rather like the early modern period, you know, th- th- there was a thing to be a successful poet, which is that you went to the big town and you somehow got yourself some status and you got people to listen to you and then you hope you got some patronage. And, you know, you, are, you, you lived or died by this and you were a success or you weren't. And they're, they're, they're rather different in that respect because the, the first of these poets is a beautiful nature poet who was quite successful and the second um, wasn't so successful. And I, I wondered if it might be useful just for me to say a little bit about um, their, you know, their histories. And, and, I, mm. and I have to thank the, the marvellous um, introduction from the Penguin Classics edition that I'm, I'm using uh, a beautiful old Penguin Classics edition called Birds Through a Ceiling of Alabaster. And the introduction is by Abdullah Aldari and George Whiteman. So the first guy um, writes wonderfully precise uh, nature poems. And I'll just read, they're all very, very short. And I will read two very short ones uh, so that you get an idea. They feel a little bit like you know, um, Japanese or Chinese um, Um, poems of around the same period. The cavalry of dew is mounted on flowers stirred by the whip of the wind. The field gallops as it stands. And the second one, all untitled. When fire is fanned, wood and charcoal, flames rise like cedars of gold. It's a beautiful transformation from the flame to a tree. I'll say a little bit more about those transformations, or we both will later on. So Abdullah al-Mutaz, who wrote these, was successful. You know, he was a successful poet. The second poet, Abu al-Ma'ari, was less successful. And he's rather a, he's a sadder poet. He's blinded by smallpox at the age of four. And he was also sort of sceptic and a thorn in the side of his patrons. So he found it difficult to make, you know, the usual living as a sort of poet, someone, you know, would praise the rich and praise your patrons and get status. So he only lasted 18 months in Baghdad, Al Mari, and then he came back to his village and, you know, he claimed it was because the, because of the death of his mother, but, but really it was because he'd sort of failed to establish himself. And so back in his village, he, you know, led this ascetic life, um, lived on lentils and figs, rather like my diet at the moment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 to remain confined to his house, he was, he was, so he was blind. He was known as the poet of poet of two prisons because he was blinded and he was sort of you know housebound. 
and he was a skeptic, it's very unusual. Um, but uh, his life sort of changed at this point, and his, his house became a sort of, you know, an object of pilgrimage, and sort of disciples from all over the educated world came to sort of, you know, um, sit at his feet and hear him speak, and he gave sort of seminars on poetry and rhetoric. And there's, there's, there's great sort of sadness and even misanthropy in the poems, but there's also an enormous beauty and compassion. And I think this is one of my favourite ones, which combines the sort of imagism of the first poet with a sense of what you can expect from life, what humans are like within this very sharp, clearly seen world. Some people are like an open grave. You give it the thing you love most and then get nothing in return. A man hard done by, yet generous, is a rock on which light rain falls. Tufts of moss grow, but flowers won't bloom. You're given the fruit of one palm tree. Bear it a basin of clear water. Don't trouble with the plight of other palms. I mean, they're, they're, they're very, very um, wonderful poems. And I think, I don't have Arabic, but it seems to me that they're, they're wonderful translations too. And they are very, very approachable. And they use the, as the translators say, they, you know, they use the, they're in a modern idiom. So they use all the nuances that are done in the sort of 70s. They, they, they use all the nuances of, you know, school playgrounds and our life as it is, you know, cues and offices. And there's nothing recondite about the language. Mm. Um, that seems to be very important because you are, what the poems are doing when they're, what strikes me about them is how exact they are. Yeah. They're, just, they're very, very, when you, when you see an object in them or a situation, it is classically more real than the real thing itself it's that business of language reifying and which you know means bringing into being um, something within words of itself you know something mm. apart from the physical world and that thing that's brought into being is more exact than the object and that's a very a powerful drive i think in art is to create or it's an ancient drive to create a thing that is somehow it's not exactly a replacement for the world but it's a preservation of it yeah it's you know that the world is going to fall apart you will go to your grave you know you will die you somehow produce in art there's a hope that you are contributing to a tradition something immemorial and that's very present in all these poems. And it's very, very different to what we generally think of, I think, in modern poetry, which is art is something that breaks up tradition and does something defiantly new. And it's not art unless it does that. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. And, it, and I think that it's refreshing to go back to you know, the, the source of art, which is, which is actually not about originality, but is it about you know, mummifying something in a very beautiful way, preserving yeah. it so that it something's becomes... Something's been captured. Yeah, yeah immemorial, yeah. Yeah. 
I was really, I mean, partly because I think lockdown has made me sort of a bit hysterical for anything to do with sensations that are not associated with my living room and sort of being outside. My son had to do a school exam with a a bit from Jane Eyre, where Jane Eyre goes for a walk and it's just before she meets Mr. Rochester. And um, so there's all these sort of things going on in the countryside and it's all cold. And I couldn't stop reading it. That's right, and she comes back in and he's there. And it's so kind of, I was just like, this is the best thing that's ever been written. I think because yeah. it's describing being outside, <laughs> but in this very kind of intense way. And I got a similar thing reading the poems. You know, it, it was very hard to separate it from my my current situation. But they were, I mean, they're obviously absolutely beautiful. But as you say, it's almost like a painting. There's something sort of yeah. genuinely. I mean, you to say mummified feels like it's somehow a judgmental term, but there's it's like a flower pressed. There's a sort yeah, of yeah, it's preserved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's something very human about that, that kind of uh, appreciation for and desire for to sort of not just to see, but to describe and to capture and to own somehow beauty and things of the world. I've been reading some stuff about human aesthetic responses to visual stimuli for a talk mm. that I'm doing. And they're always so keen to argue it away from being anything to do with beauty. So there's a whole thing. I mean, humans like shiny things, okay? Yeah. And... It's a very, very robust finding. Um, and the scientific perspective <laughs> on this is it's the that, COVID approach to aesthetics, <laughs> isn't it? Well, they basically say, well, it's, you know, the, the papers all say, well, it's because water is shiny and it's important that humans know about water. So that's why we like shiny things. Can that really be the case? Because I think everything needs to know about water. That's, you know, some love from dragonflies through to bears. Water matters. So why would it just be us that cares and a handful of other animals that cares about shiny things? And there's, there's, there's something more going on there. I think part of it's to do with, you know, like you say, Corvid's birds see colour, we see colour, lots of animals don't see colour like us. I think it's, it's just, you know, the simple, simple proposition is, it, does the aesthetic actually help us remember things better? And it's I not, think the answer is it probably does. Yeah, and it's not independent of your engagement with it and enjoyment of it. There doesn't have to be some incredibly important evolutionary benefit from engaging with it in this way as the, no. the the shiny things literature tends to want that it's there's a sort of appreciation for the complexity and meaning of form that humans seem to have i think this thing of you know um the objects in these poems becoming becoming more themselves in language than than they are anyway you yeah. know, it's part of what we're calling this 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 process of preservation yeah. but it's I think it's also a way of, you know, the Buddhists would say it's, <laughs> Buddhists as opposed to Islam, but the Buddhists would say it's a way of honouring the world. Uh, yes, and celebrations. I that, that's an important aspect of it. And it, I think it's also a way of handing something on. You know, I don't think a tradition is just a sentimental thing in art. I think it is like, um, very much like handing on a skill. Mm. you know, uh, um, through the generations. So our constructive and aesthetic DNA, if that's not a kind of, com- it's a sort of, you know, complete you know, mess of terms, is it's very, it's hardwired into us in some way to celebrate, to render things in an aesthetically exact way so mm. that we don't lose grasp of the real, you know, we don't devalue the real world. We don't take it for granted. And that's what's behind this. The idea is that, you know, you in, in epic, I mean, the great narrative poems, 
of the you know the the, the BCE era, um, the thousands of years before that, both in ancient Greece and in Mesopotamia, when you honour the seasons and the crops, and you create goddesses for all these things, and that comes out of some very very ancient animist background, you're you're doing it so that you don't take the world and the seasons and food and your survival for granted. It's reminding you of how important it is to value what you have. And yeah, I'm certainly banged on about this before, but one of the things that I'm always struck by when you show me these sort of ancient bits of apparently incredibly contemporary poetry is this, this suggestion that as soon as modern humans appear on Earth, everything's different because they start making all this stuff and it's yeah. not just stuff, but it's beautiful stuff. But also the argument that goes, there's been no other evolutionary processes that have affected how our brains work since then. Effectively, we have the same brains. We yeah. live in different worlds, so those brains learn to do different things. But the, the starting point and what they're capable of, and the stuff that is common across them, has not changed that much. And that I'm always shocked by that. Like the, the poem here, the one about the, um, the open grave, and you give something yes, you love. That, That's yeah. just beautiful and intensely familiar. And the sort of shock that over the, you know, the roar of the years, everything else being different, this absolutely, you know, lots of stuff isn't that different. Our brains and our social lives are not that different. And that beautiful analogy being so recognisable is kind yeah. of, it's, it's sort of shocking. Well, it also makes it, you know, you, you think of the other sort of great grave scenes in literature almost immediately. I mean, this is the other point of kind of tradition building upon incrementally, you know, one poet builds on another's work. Yeah. One of the reasons of that is so that you get a kind of, you get a sense of um, relationship between between artistic families, but also kind of real families. You see, yeah. you see how generations mean something to each other, and that is yeah. important for our sense of the future and what we can expect of the people who come after us. So yeah. when you read this poem about a graveside, you also inevitably think, I think, of Shakespeare. You know, you think of Yorick, and you think mm. of the scenes in Hamlet, and you think of other, uh, you think of deathbed scenes, you think of the sort of beautiful, um, you know, Renaissance paintings of sort of people dying a good death. Uh, you think of, you know, you think in the in the Middle Ages of Arthur on the on the bark, you know, going to his last resting place at the end of Mort d'Arthur. So it's I think that that sense of connecting us, as you say, through time to different people who who preserve this remarkably similar values and and desires and 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 skills is is really important. The second poem I gave you from. Almari is is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it could be written by a sort of philosopher of mind now. The comet, has it nerves or is it dead? Has it a mind or is it burning rock? Some people believe in a world after death, while others say we're only vegetables. I advise you to avoid ugliness and do what's good. For I've learnt the soul near death repents, repents its gouty skin which began so fresh and may do again. This is absolutely brilliant. Yes. Kind of moral and philosophical argument in eight lines. Yes. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. It's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And as you yeah. say, the kind of, the modernity of that kind of sceptical perspective, you would imagine, 
Could, how could that possibly be over the centuries? This guy is a, this guy is a pan psychist, isn't he? I mean, yeah. it's like he's kind of been on the blower to Thomas Nagel and said, "You know what, Tom? I think we can do we can do without the sort of three hundred page books. Let's just have eight lines." Yes, I think I can put it more briefly than that. Yeah. No, it's quite quite extraordinary. Before there were well understood mechanisms for heritability. There was this kind of idea that you would have, you know, you kind of acquired traits might be inherited. And now we know that um, whatever aspects of epigenetics are, epigenetics are out there, that then there might be some little effects, but you know, we don't, if my dad learned to read, it won't necessarily mean that I will know how to read, you know, that that's not yeah. how traits are carried on. But we do have this cultural transmission of traits that way. So we're born continuously into slightly different worlds, even in a family. Any child that's born into a family is going to have a different family world than the children that are born after them because there's someone yeah. else in there. And, and it kind of scales up. So there's, there is this kind of continuously shifting environment, even within one culture, because stuff's changing rapidly and slowly. That means all this weight of stuff behind you and the influences that could be having, some of which you're aware of, some of which, like this, these poets, I had no idea of until I see how extremely familiar they are and presumably they have coloured and cultured it's, it's the, quite interesting, the world isn't it? we live but, in. I mean, yeah. And, and you, you mentioned that the way that... Um, yeah, but you know your what you've just said about heritability and variation and, and the inevitability of variation. You know that you that yeah. you is really really important um, mathematically, and it's part of the mathematics of the time that this poetry comes out of. And it's something that's important to Alan Turing, who's a you know person I've been very interested in. Even if you wanted to kind of repeat circumstances mm. and to pass on things exactly, it's impossible. It's yeah. impossible to do that. In fact, even if you copy things exactly, but put them in sequence, the second thing isn't really a copy no. because it's in a different, it's in an innumerable sequence. Yeah. It comes second and it's different by virtue of the fact that it comes second. Yeah. Uh, and that is, it, it has always seemed to me a mysterious and beautiful thing that, you know, we talk in our, you know, the new technology age very easily about cyborgs and repetition it's a great fear isn't it that, that mm. will be will be replaced by being repeated but in fact repetition i think is sort of impossible yeah uh, <laughs> but, but <laughs> it, exactly. it's, it's kind of a fantasy really i remember um in the 90s when they cloned that sheep and suddenly everyone was very worried about being cloned and you know <laughs> you have a clone. and i can remember saying then that you know that if if you even if i could completely clone you I would then have, you know, none of us are just a thing that we are born as. Our brains don't work out of the box. We have, you know, at least 20 extremely important years of growing up during which our brain is yeah. maturing and all the things we learn then. And then, of course, that doesn't stop. That continues over your whole life. So yeah. the, the influences on any one human at any one point in time are never just what you were born with and then somehow the environment because that environment is a continuously shifting and flexible. Yes, you varying. can't exactly and you can't yeah. you can you can you can reproduce well it's part of the kind of idea that you know you can you can reproduce a state exactly. But actually no one has ever really been able to de to define what a state is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because it's like you know, it's like trying to stop a moment in time. It can't really be done precisely mm. because it is subject to some kind of you know temporal or historical process. And it, obviously, um, you know, it's, it's something we're we're really struggling with at the moment. Um, you know, because in our my science, what we do is we take humans into the laboratory 
and we do experiments on them. And we do I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say, and leave them there. <laughs> <laughs> someone's gonna have to go and get them out <laughs> so we, so there you are bye and one of the one of the pretenses is that we have you know we have a controlled environment and of course we do control the environment we don't just run the studies all over the building and in the you know in the middle of a circus or whatever we control lots of stuff but there's still this huge element of actually kind of people's expectations about coming in and how you run the study and your disposition towards people there's this phenomenal you know kind of the, the environment is never just this neutral space there's no. I strongly suspect that several of my studies on laughter would have had very different results if we'd been perfectly horrible to the participants right from the outset yeah and just yeah, been yeah. rude and aggressive to them all the way through I don't think yeah. we'd have found what we found because that you know it, it's and we don't think of that as being part of what's going on, but of course it's absolutely critical. And often we get criticised for this, like that's a bad thing. But of course, it's not. It's part actually of the the magic of studying humans is that yeah. we we can set up an environment where somebody is prepared to come along and be interested in finding out about the world by being part of your experiment. So it's not. It's 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 never and never some sort of clean, entirely objective tabula rasa on which we probe human behavior it's always this kind of rich messy and as you say totally time and place dependent experience well there's the the guy who writes about this very simply and really well is the physicist and cosmologist paul davies he's a very very interesting person i think he was originally born in the uk and then was in australia for many years and he wrote a lovely book called the mind of god sort of a response to the stephen hawking you know and there's a lovely bit in it where he talks about just this problem he says well you know, a lot of people in, you know, pure maths and in maths in general are very, you know, keen on sort of necessary truths, things that, are, you know, are immutable, immutable laws, immutable laws of forces and sort of equations that are just so. And then he, he goes into the undecidability and, and the reasons for this, this isn't actually quite true, that you can never really predict the outcome, even of a very, very simple equation or algorithmic process. But he just says this lovely thing at one point, he says, really, it's very hard to think of any necessary truths in a philosophical sense because most of everything is contingent. Yeah. You know, and he takes it really, just this fascinating thing where he absolutely takes it down to the most, most fine-grained granular level. You know, you go, you go from a simple situation to the constituent molecules down to the kind of subatomic particles and the, then you go back in time, you know, to when the sort of forces were, were all one and and everything it turns out is contingent. Yeah. And he said the big problem, of course, with singularities is that we don't know really what the the notion of environment means mm. at that level. It's a lovely book, Mind of God. I recommend. Oh, let's check that out. Thank you. stuff about you know um what things are and then and then the things that affect them their environments and their men and what happens to them in a mental environment is the subject mm. of the the subject of the the wonderful paper and do you want to introduce it and say a yes bit so the paper that um i sent you and as usual i think i got it but they better end of the deal here but um it's it's a paper about what's called mental rotation you're given two shapes on the screen and you have to work out that if you rotated them both in your mind are they in fact the same shape just at different orientations or are they two different shapes 
no, no matter yeah. how, how much you rotate them. So a good example here would be if you look at your left and your right hand, they have the same kind of structural properties. In fact, there's no way you can rotate your hands such that they then become the same shape because, in fact, they are mirror images of each other in, yeah. in one structural form. And the idea here is that, first of all, I think it's always been of interest to people because it's something that people vary on quite a lot. Um, it's something that there's a lot of arguments about why that variation occurs. It seems to be quite different. Your ability to do this kind of mental rotation task is quite different from um, the things that seem to speak to, uh, say, verbal skills and things like that. So maybe you know, there's historically been quite a different, a lot of interest in di- different kinds of uh, intelligence forms, for best phrase, and mental rotation seems to fit onto one of those. Um, but this paper is arguing that it's an intensely embodied phenomenon or you can use it to look at embodiment and by embodiment they mean a kind of an unavoidable use and maybe not even deliberate use of your knowledge of how your body works that you use to guide your manipulation of information in the world so what they've done here is they have these very classic mental rotation figures which almost like little lego shapes built out of lego with arms going off in different directions and then they add in human bits and pieces in ways that are either kind of aligned with what it would be like if you squeezed a human into that space or with the bits all in the wrong places and what they find is that if you can have a sort of see a, a physical body alignment to these shapes it's a lot easier to do the mental rotation than if the body alignment isn't there or if it's in fact in the wrong direction so the feet are appearing next to the head something like that and what they do is this has been shown in adults and they're testing it in children because in children there are different ideas about how these capacities develop one of which is the kind of sensory motor glue that embodiment can really form an important part of but that develops along a different root and gets integrated with things like your ability to visually image things at a later stage and other views like Piaget's idea was like no everything's built on that sensory motor stuff all visual imagery is built on that so it's a test of that that is quite like the cosmological thing isn't it you know that Piaget is saying that actually all all he, he's saying that all these different capacities were sort of one originally they're all they're all they're very closely bound from the outset yeah. the sensory motor and the yeah. and the capacity to conceptualize to, to you know to see imagery yeah and in the same way that you know there are the four fundamental forces we now think are really basically two at the outset and possibly only one right at the beginning mm. you know, and that is it seems very persuasive to me that that the sensory motor and the you know, our capacity to mentally to imagine something and perform these rotations comes from our actual physical movements and, and that mm. sensory motor repertoire of, of movements. That seems uh, very persuasive. But the paper mentions this, this other idea, which I did find a bit more difficult to get hold of, which is that actually they're divergent, that you yeah. have imagery in some way at the outset and you also have motor skills. They are progressively integrated as you get older into one thing but that raises the question it seems to me you know what is it to have an original um imagination you know how, yeah. how is it they're separate at the outset that's what yeah. i 
would ask. No, I think I would agree with you. And I think one of the problems is it's actually really hard. And in this paper, they can't actually do the experiments with children below a certain age because they have no idea what you're talking about. A lot of the, <laughs> lot of the things that work with adults, we cheerfully do in the lab. As soon as you start doing with children, it gets hard really quickly. And it means that our, you know, our, our tools are blunt. Our insights are, are limited by the things that we can do. And I think it is really interesting. If you look at Piaget, Piaget didn't do experiments, really, as you'd think of experiments. And he only really looked at his own children. He just spent a lot of time looking at what they did as they interacted with the world, as they grew up. And he did do some, you know, sort of things we, you know, perspective taking. He would ask them what, you know, we're both looking at this scene. What can you see? What do you think I can see? How those sorts of things change. But he was, you know, he was, he was basically just observing a very small cadre of children doing fairly normal things. And that's what he based his ideas on. So he wasn't kind of caught up by the paradigms in the same way. It's quite a, it's a quite a difficult thing in any any sort of analytical study full stop that you know do you find out about the world by going very very deeply into kind of one sample one yeah. thing or do you take a sort of broad range you know do you try and sort of encompass everything at once. Its remit is what's the relationship between sensory motor skills, uh, you know, move actual movements, actual dispositions, say of the hands, mm. and mental uh, rotation of these objects. But then it doesn't. The next question is: How does your mental uh, imagery, your conceptualization of something, go on yeah. to affect what you do? with your movement skills because yes. that I think is the really interesting thing because it turns out and I think there's there's a problem sort of halfway through the, the piece that identifies this it turns out that once you've got a, once you've performed a mental rotation you often can't then get that rotation back into physical description accurately mm. it sort of falls apart slightly you know, if you imagine something, can you reproduce it physically? Well, that bit is more difficult than you might imagine. It yeah. doesn't seem to go back into the brutally physical in quite the same way because they've got this very interesting bit where they show one of the one of the rotation sort of exercises. They've got a, a, a figure, um, you know, made out of these cubes, sticking with one of his arms out, you know, and his legs out in front of him. And then the idea is that that's the image on the left and the image on the right looks as if it might be the same and it's been rotated but in fact it's different because it's a mirror image Mm. but (laughs) so that's the sort of idea that's the mental idea but what they've actually then put on the page if we think of you know drawing or you know describing it as the sort of physical description of what you've done in the mental rotation does not at all reflect actually what they mean. Yeah. Sort of got it slightly wrong. And that seems to me very interesting. It, it means that it's quite difficult. You can, you can think about how you get from the physical to the mental, but then getting to the, from the mental back to the physical is a whole other ball game. Yeah. I think, um, so what Will is referring to here is the figure legend on this image, which is effectively if two items we have decided they're saying were different, and they're different because they're, they're different, like the hands are different. And they, they, they collapse the description of the fact that the two objects are 
you know, left and right-handed isomers, as chemists would say, by the referring to it as a mirror image based on the the amount of rotation that's different between the two as well. Which, of course, if you had a mirror image and you did actually mean that in terms of I'm standing in front of a mirror and that's reflected back at me, that would be affected by what your angle was. So it gets very, very confusing very quickly. And yeah. I think that's... Basically, they're not, but what really, they're not really saying... They say um, the right picture is the mirror image yeah. of the left one rotated by 135 degrees. And it's that's, not. And it's, yes. it's not. That's an yeah. overcondensation of what's happened. Yeah. Because you have to take into account when is the mirror image taken, where is the mirror, and yeah. then is, it, is the image rotated after you've taken the mirror image snapshot, in which case there's no way you need 135 degrees. You need about yeah. sort of under 90 degrees. Or... Do you rotate the image and then take a mirror snapshot of it, in which case the disposition of the figure would be entirely different? So I think the thing that's really interesting here is they've run into the problem that um, Michael Billig defines as jargon and the problem of jargon. And I've heard you say something about this as well. And what he... <laughs> what. Um, what Billig argues is, because they, so here they're using the term mirror image, and what they actually mean by mirror image is this left-right... Isomer, isomer thing, yeah. Um, which is independent of how things are actually oriented towards each other at any one point in time, unlike a mirror. What Billig says, he has a really fantastic book called How to Write Badly and Get Ahead in the Social Sciences. I think I might have done it slightly <laughs> wrong. <laughs> he, he says, and I've heard you say the same thing to my students, that one of the problems with jargon isn't just that you obscure meaning from people because we think we know what that means, but actually we think about it, we don't know what that means. But actually you obscure it from yourself. Yeah, I think that's you think problem. it's a huge issue and you it, think it's clear. Although I think this is a great paper and I really enjoyed it. It runs straight into that problem where you actually Oh, I think it's really I think no that's that's I think it is totally fascinating but it is it, it also if you sort of if you're a lay person I mean you just want to be interested in it you know yeah. these things do matter a bit because yeah. otherwise you kind of think oh am I have I just completely misunderstood this? Yeah. Can I, or, or am I crap at mental rotation? As it turns out, I probably am crap at mental rotation, but I'm not helped. <laughs> no, no, it's it's a it's a, it's a very very interesting problem, and I think we haven't. Um, we're probably never going to easily move away from it. But I think the fact that you hide your meaning from yourself is one of the really big. It's a very big problem. And it's one of the, one of the biggest issues when you're writing a scientific paper is to bear that in mind that you should be you shouldn't be writing for other people who know what you're talking about. You should be writing for other people who may have never come anywhere near this before. And yeah. if they don't, if you don't catch them, and they if they think, well, there's oh, no idea what's going on here, then they're not going to go away feeling that they've understood what you said, and they likely won't ever bother referencing it again. Can I ask you another question about this piece? Yes. Does the voice? take advantage in human development does the voice take advantage of a descended larynx or yeah. or does um the larynx drop in order to produce the voice and i think this is is a chicken egg thing and i think this business about how mental imagery cooperates with the sensory motor um and whether it builds on sensory motor skills or detaches itself from them is is similar is it not do you think that's something you're always coming up against in in developmental psychology is that just a given i think it would, it's a real issue in developmental psychology and partly because you 
we know the brain, like I said, it doesn't work straight out of the box. So lots of stuff is learned really quickly. As far as we can see, there are some preferences that literally are there the minute you open your eyes. So as okay. soon as a baby is born, it will show a preference for faces, even really quite abstract faces. And that's, there's something about the configuration of eyes that we seem to be born knowing about. And it's quite shocking if you're ever around a newborn. They do they just fixate on faces. It's slightly uncanny. Like, what's going on here? No, but actually how you then trace that, because most of the time we can't do behavioural studies with children until they're quite old and all the things that will be influencing that and all the different kinds of experiences they have. So, for example, that I was really shocked by this. All of the literature we have, so eyes are incredibly important to humans and right from the outset we care about them and you can track like how people are integrating with, in interacting with an environment by tracking how their eye movements move. So if you look at eyes when people are looking at a face, they will track out the features on the face. And depending if you're doing different things, if you're lip reading, you're looking one place. If you are doing something, you know, like, trying to determine where someone's looking, you're looking a different place on the face. All fine, great. That's so the, you can sort of see this thing developing. Incredibly, if you do the same experiments with people from China, they don't look in the same place. People from China grow up looking at different places on faces because they have different social rules about what is and is not polite. And it's absolutely extraordinary. So even something that seems to rest on a very basic, immediate preference, which is being interested in things that have eyes or faces that have eyes, is massively influenced by where you grow up, how you actually well, then are. use it's that this, skill. It's, it's so exactly. Thing all things are conditioned, isn't yep, it? It's, it's exactly. The, it's the contingent. Uh, principle coming back in yeah i mean you could relate this back to those the beautiful beautifully exact poems that we looked at at the beginning of this podcast one of the reasons it's thought that or it could might be thought that things are so sharply seen in them is not to do with you know the intrinsic ability of the poet to sort of capture something very brilliant but the fact that of course light and contrast at that latitude is very, very, very stark. You know, yeah. if you have a if you have a, a a shadow in very, very bright light, it's the contrasts are very, very shocking and um obvious. They're not like sort of British weather where, you know, <laughs> in these islands with shades of grey. Not at the moment, of course, we're having a very sunny spring. But that might have something to do with the exactness, you know, the exact contours of the things described. And I think that's quite persuasive. I mean, even things as well about, and there's quite good evidence that how you, I mean, I know writing comes in later for humans, but there's the way that you learn to write. So we write left to right. And we will, when we are examining a scene or inspecting something, we tend to look left to right. It really drives our attentional system to kind of start on the left and go across. And that seems to flip. If you are writing in an Arabic system where you write right to left... Yeah, things go in the opposite direction. So it's not obviously at some point you need you you are able to sort of fractionate these things and study them scientifically. But you do have just to acknowledge the scale of, as you say, the, the 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 things that are just right across the board influencing any one of the factors that you're looking at, and that might well arise or have their basis in biological issues, but which are under these incredibly complex developmental mm. and cultural differences that make well it's one of the reasons why it's very interesting to study humans scientifically but it also means that it's 
never simple and very, very rarely a very simple plain answer in fact no, it only gives you a plain answer like oh it's we like sparkling things because we like water it's almost certainly wrong yeah i know and just just thinking of the i think also the kind of extra textual thing of what kind of paper and what kind of binding you use is probably very important in how mm. um writing establishes you know preferences for description you know do you is something is something unscrolled top to bottom or left to right um or is it written on leaves of a book yeah i mean that's yeah. bound to have you know that, that i'd really like to read something uh, serious about what that does to sequences and description how yeah. or, or, or how how series becomes sequence you know a sequence being a sort of meaningful series you get it in speech so if you look at people so we breathe completely differently as soon as we start talking and in fact you can tell how someone how long someone's going to talk for by how big a breath they take so it's like um before you start speaking you already know how long you're going to speak for at some level and people very rarely break a sentence up by having to breathe in between if they do there's normally something wrong so it's like the unit for planning speech when we're talking is based around breathing because breath control yeah. is under... Is, if you ain't got breath control, you, you ain't got anything with voices. No, So yeah, it would be very interesting to look at those sorts of constraints with, with writing. Well, prosody is, prosody is all to do with breath yeah. control, yeah, really. absolutely. You know? If I'm writing something new, I cannot bear to do it on the computer. I have to do it with paper and a pen. Yeah. Because the linearity that's forced on you by a computer is no use to me when I'm first thinking of something. I tend to do both. I tend to write longhand and mm. then and then write on the screen. So as it were, I kind of correct my original. I correct my original draft and I correct my origin. So it's a sort of. Di- I quite like the dynamic approach, which is yeah. that you know you you use you know you use word processing as it used to be called yes. <laughs> to um, you know redefine your your um your sense of what you originally wanted to do yeah. and so the, the the past and the present kind of inform each other as you go along and i've always yeah. i think i've always done that partly because i was trained as an editor and you know that's what you're doing as an editor you're looking at other people's work and you're always saying to yourself what does this person really want to say well thank you totally fascinating thank you very much sophie thank you and thank, thank you everyone for listening see you next month